Can your gut composition predict Alzheimer's? That's today's big question, and my returning guest is Gautam Dantas. Gautam heads up the Dantas Lab at the Washington University School of Medicine at St. Louis. His lab works at the interface of microbial genomics, ecology, synthetic biology, and systems biology to understand, harness, and engineer the biochemical processing potential of microbial communities. Gautam's work on soil microbes helped explain how antibiotic resistance emerges and spreads. He also studies how the intestinal microbiome becomes established in childhood and showed that treating babies with antibiotics reduces the variety of healthy bacteria in their guts and promotes the growth of drug-resistant species. Since our last conversation feels like a hundred years ago, Gautam was named a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology for his studies of microbial communities and antibiotic resistance. I wanted to have him back on the show, not just selfishly, but I wanted to have this conversation not just because Gautam is one of my favorite guests of all time, and not just because of this new study we're going to really dig into, but because you have probably been affected by Alzheimer's in some way. I certainly have. My family certainly has. And Alzheimer's is growing more prevalent throughout the world every day as the U.S. and China and so many other countries get old quick. We've asked so many questions about dementia and Alzheimer's and other brain diseases and found so few answers, much less answers we can actually act on that are repeatable and that can either prevent or just slow this disease in some way. And that's what makes me so excited about Gautam's new research, however uh, preliminary it might be. Uh, we get to keep doing it. We get to keep asking these important questions that can help people. So welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is Science for People Who Give a Shit. In these weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human like Gautam, who's working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. And along the way, we're going to discover not just information, but tips, strategies, and, and stories you can relate to and use to get involved yourself and become more effective for yourself uh, and help unfuck the world around us. So please enjoy my conversation with Gautam Dantas. Gautam Dantas, welcome back to the show. Nothing has happened since we last talked. Yeah, nothing at all. Happy to be back. Very normal, very normal. How is university life treating you? How is how is everything? You know, overall, good. I mean, as we said right before this, uh, things that I think I have some control over are, are great. And then I guess you roll with the punches with the things that you don't have control over. So, yeah, I, again, I don't quite remember when it was. It's been at least five, I think, since we spoke. I, I Yeah, who can know? Yeah, but yeah, lab is going really well. The best uh, metric by how well a lab is doing, uh, in, in some way at least, is a combination of the psyche of the current group and then also where people have gone on to after they've left. Uh, and both of those I'm very happy with. People are, the our alumni are, are doing incredible things, uh, importantly in lots of diverse spheres. So they haven't mm. sort of specialized in one or the other, the people in biotech, there's people in education, there's people who've gone a similar route that I did, but it really is across the board. So that's really exciting to see. And then we've also fortunately been able to continue to attract diverse talent. And so, yeah, by those two metrics, work life is, is good. That's 
about as good as it gets. There's something beautiful. I'm, you know, my, my children are young now, but they think they're 10 years older than they are. And there's, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I very reluctantly understand and I'm beginning to subscribe to the whole thing of like, you know, eventually you have to set them free to go do yep. bigger, better things and, and, um, try not to, you know, preload their therapy bills as much as you can before that. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I imagine, I imagine that's what running a lab feels like. You know, it's funny because it's, it's both that is, but I also have young kids, uh, I guess not so young anymore, but 10 and 13. Mm-hmm. And so obviously like a lot of kids in that age range, the pandemic was a huge deal in terms of, you know, how they found themselves, how they got out of it, how they supported themselves and their friends. And so, yeah, sometimes it's it's hard to distinguish between uh, the methods you use as a parent and the right. methods you need to use as a mentor uh, in sure. the lab, right? Um, so. Yeah, I know my friend who who's the captain of a submarine wrestles with that as well. Um, he definitely is a little frustrated that people at work listen to him far more than they do at home, um, where he's <laughs> definitely more impotent than he is. Uh, there. It's interesting. <laughs> the weird part of that also is our kids, fortunately, are apparently angels at school. So every time we have a parent-teacher conference, they're like, yeah, your kids are role models. You know, they never speak up uh, or speak out. Uh, and it's a pleasure to have them in their classroom. And it, it's this mixture of pride, obviously, and sure. also like, who are you talking about? Right. right? Are you ever because uh, sometimes we have our conferences <laughs> next week, and sometimes I, I feel mine are mostly similar. And sometimes I'm like, "Am I in the wrong conference?" <laughs> like, <laughs> because yeah, I've got they, some they things I need to share. Home, so. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, look, that's all you can hope for, right? Is uh, I mean, it would be nice if it was uh, similar tracks, but it's got to go awry in one way. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I'm glad to hear it. Thirteen, boy, that's a real human being. My 10-year-old thinks he's that old, but he keeps saying things like, I, do you think I have a pimple yet? Has my voice changed? And I'm like, buddy, you're going to regret all of that stuff. I know. Enjoy it while it lasts, but you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Uh, just unbelievable. So anyways, a good host would have gone back and listened to our entire conversation and all these different things. But, you know, life. I don't remember if I asked you this question, but I've definitely asked like 100 plus guests since whenever, since time started. It's a little ridiculous, but it also usually provokes uh, something honest and 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 proud. So I will ask you either way, and then maybe we'll go back and compare. The question is, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but let's have some fun with it. Be bold. Well, first I'll take the cop out. I don't think I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think, uh, and I don't say that with false humility. I think, you know, it's, we have a buffer in humanity of having whatever 8 billion people, right? Uh, we have lots of brilliant people. We've got lots of people who are cruising along. And I think everyone has a, a, a vital contribution because most importantly, they impact the people around them. And so I think that's the that, that's where I gain the most sort of happiness is to, to those local interactions to see that hopefully you're making a difference. But, you know, you could probably delete me from that particular, any set of interactions and and life and certainly humanity would go on without a a blip. But let's take that back a notch and say, okay, of course, let's assume that that's true, right? Hopefully no one has actually directly answered and said, well, I'm absolutely vital (laughs) to everything that happens. I'm sure you've had a few, but... I um, I need to do a supercut someday and and dig those up. (laughs) Right. But what I guess my answer to that would be sort of, you know, what do I think is my value proposition? If you were to delete me, what might we lose? And I think hopefully, again, the answer to that is essentially the same as the answer I gave earlier. That is, I think my greatest value 
is the, the people that I get to interact with, the people hopefully through our interactions are inspired to go off and do cooler and better and, and, and more amazing things. Uh, and that's both in the personal sphere, right? We talked about our kids and our, our families, right? So if we can, uh, by being a role model or just through the conversations we have, inspire people to do cool things despite you, I think that's where you've had the greatest impact. And I think, you know, scientifically, I'll take a, a, a bit of a detour to answer your question. One of the, the, the most impactful things that my postdoctoral advisor told me, George Church, was that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, he would decide that it was time to quit only when uh, he could actually keep to a five-year plan, right? And what I took out of that was his, you know, his, his, his plan to always be surprising himself, right? He always wanted to be doing things that he couldn't have predicted five years ago that he'd be doing. And I was like, wow, that, first of all, the confidence that that takes, right, yeah, is incredible. incredible. It's partly confidence and it's partly aspiration. And I've certainly tried to adopt some flavor of that in the kind of work that we do in the lab. You know, at, at some clip, evaluate how much are we doing right now that we couldn't have put on paper five years ago, right? And I think because the answer to that has always been more than 50%. More than 50% of the work that we're doing in our lab right now did not exist in our minds, did not exist as ideas here at least, certainly by other people uh, five years ago. That in itself is value, right? I think that's value that we as a group provide to say, you know, let's be innovative enough. Let's be committed enough to be doing new things that are not only the things that we had decided to do five years ago. We need to, we need to certainly fulfill our commitments, but also reserve a really important part of the, our lines of investigation to, to be, you know, you know, at the point where we're asking new questions with new people. So I know that's a very long way of answering your question, but yeah, I think that's the value proposition. It's the, it's the commitment to be doing things that are sort of pushing the envelope. I love that. That's wonderful. And I love the way you see your sort of position in, in, in life and as the steward and, and leader of, of your lab. Do you, do you follow soccer at all or football? I do some, again, partly because of the 13-year-old. He got sure. into yeah, Premier League. What are you so. going to do? Unavoidable. <laughs> <Yeah>. Unavoidable. <laughs> the things I'm hit with on a daily barrage. But there's a there's a position, the number nine, where you basically, the offense flows through you. You're not the the sexy goal scorer uh, by default, though you, you certainly have them. But you are the connector, and you facilitate everything through that. And it seems like you're very comfortable being that, not necessarily getting all of the glory, but at the same time, pushing the envelope and pushing it forward. Yeah, I think that's that's well put. I think it is. It's really nice to be at the position where, A, you have the privilege to do that, right? Because I'm sure everyone would love to be able to do that. You kind of have to work towards it. And you're not always successful at it. I think that's also okay that, you know, maybe your number nine needs to be subbed in every once in a while. Sure. But uh, yeah, I think you're, I think that well, well describes the aspects that I really enjoy about my job is to be the person who sort of facilitates and mentors to enable people to take whatever risks they're willing to take towards, you know, asking questions that honestly, I just don't have the ability to ask myself. I know that about myself, that the reason we have the diversity of questions in our group are partly just a, a, a self-realization that if we, if this group ran purely based on my ideas, uh, we'd stagnate 100%. Mm -hmm. It's I'm not the idea generation engine that other people execute, right? It's, sure. it's more the hopefully I'm the idea facilitator and then 
right? Help get the resource to get things done. Sure. I find it's always telling not to just keep dragging it back to soccer, but you know, when one of those players retires or leaves or whatever it might be, and you can usually judge how valuable they actually were by how many mm-hmm. of the teammates are like, so, you know, he was the most important player on the team. Like, and it's not even close and it might not be the highest selling Jersey, but if they're all saying that, then, you know, that that's the, that's the deal. Right. And he, he's running the engine room. So listen, let's talk about some of your most recent work and I'm going to do yep. something questionable, intentionally questionable and dangerous here. And it's actually for the second conversation in a row. Now that I say this out loud, I'm going to attempt for about 10 seconds to simplify a both the brain and the gut, which is just an enormous sure. mistake. Here we go. So obviously a lot of news about Alzheimer's in the past year or so on the research front. We still don't really know the cause or causes well enough. And that's probably because there's some combination, uh, depending on a person and in macro, genetic, environmental, and lifestyle factors, which I think is frustrating to a lot of people who have experienced this in their family or are genetically predisposed to it. I get it. I've seen plenty of it. Your team uh, conducted, uh, I believe, an NIH-funded human study that suggests that the gut microbiome composition in the earliest stage of Alzheimer's, so that's when brain change may have already started, but before cognitive symptoms become apparent. Is that right? Differs from healthy people. How much of that did I get wrong? You know, you got 100% of that right. So thank you. Maybe the first time a teacher's (laughs) ever said that to me. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. No, you you, you got the the most important part of that nicely and succinctly. But do you want me to embellish a little bit? I do. Before we go, though, I did read somewhere, I can't remember my research, that Conducting the study came about because was it you and your co-author were, uh, who studies Alzheimer's in particular were hanging out at your kid's soccer game just shooting the shit? So start 100%. with that and then embellish for us about the study and the participants and we'll go from there. Well, we're clearly on the same wavelength because uh, that's exactly where I was going to start. So yeah, this all starts with my uh, friend and colleague. Uh, his name is Dr. Bo Ansis. He's a neurologist here at uh, WashU. And exactly as you said, we were at the sidelines of our respective kids' soccer games. They were not even playing in the same game. So we were sort of, you know, their fields wow. next to each other. Wow, really uh, stretching serendipity and, and, there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I think what had happened was we had actually bumped into each other several times over the years. But, you know, these fears really don't usually overlap, right? People studying uh, sure. the gut microbiome and people studying the brain. And it was just very casually that Bo mentioned that you know, it would be fun for us to work on something together, given this burgeoning interest in the gut-brain axis. And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, we get along. So that's a, that's a sure. we've checked one metric in terms of collaboration. <laughs> so it's kind of almost weird that we start there. But it's, you know, oftentimes you find that you have a great scientific idea, and then you need to figure out all the negotiations about personalities. So we'd got sure. one, one box checked. Um, so he then proceeded to tell me about this really cool idea that you alluded to of so-called preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. WashU has been at the forefront of showing this, this concept where AD, Alzheimer's disease, is a, it's a progressive neurodegenerative disorder, right? So it's something where things get worse over time, right? Especially in old age, uh, the, the manifestations that are the, the, the ones that we hear about that are, are sad and we have a lot of empathy for the people and their families who suffer from them are the cognitive decline, right? Sure. It's the dementia. And again, as you said at the outset, unfortunately, we just don't understand clearly what the mechanism is. We don't know what causes this. We know what the symptoms are. But 
a lot of his work has been done over you know decades to show that there are correlates at least mm-hmm. on the human side of things that are elevated for instance in the veins or the blood of people who have uh, clear Alzheimer's disease symptoms that are different from people who don't, right? And and that's how any good scientific clinical study starts. You look for correlates. You look for things that might be up or down in a significant way in the disease state versus the control state. And then you start asking, right, is this a consequence of the disease or is it the cause of the disease? Mm-hmm. And if it's potentially the cause of the disease, then you can use it for diagnostics and you can also potentially use it for coming up with therapies. And that's mm-hmm. essentially every disease that we, we try to do this with. So what is preclinical AD? What was it that Bo told me about? So he said that there's been really this fascinating finding over the last decade or so that when you start looking at patients who have a familial risk for AD and you're able to recruit them in, right? So these people are highly motivated to understand what is going on with them based on a, a familial risk. So they are willing to be tracked, right? Well before the age that usual AD would, would set up. Mm-hmm. And tracking those individuals means that some fraction of them, because of their known familial risk, will eventually get to unfortunately symptomatic AD. Sure. And what has been done is all of those things that I told you that get elevated or get significantly different in the symptomatic individuals, those features have been tracked in these individuals, right? So measures of amyloid, which a lot of people have heard that term at least associated with AD, sure. and a few other markers. You know, and this is done by imaging. It's done by looking at blood through spinal taps in the in the cerebrospinal fluid. But in the end, those details don't matter. It's just it's a series of markers in the human that have been tracked. So what preclinical AD has shown is that in individuals who've been tracked, who eventually go to develop AD, many of these markers start spiking in these individuals a good 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. before they get symptomatic, which really puts a, a, a fine point on this idea that it is excessive disease right? That perhaps there are these sort of triggers that are setting this individual on, on this long course to eventually get the disease. It's happening so far in advance that perhaps at the minimum, we'd be able to diagnose these individuals. So, you know, decisions can be made by them and their family members about how they want to spend the next, you know, 10, 15 years of their life. Uh, But more importantly, towards the future, hopefully that gives us an opportunity for therapeutic intervention, right? Maybe you can change those things around if those things are causative. So, okay, that's all background that involves nothing about the gut microbiome. No, but it's really helpful because there's, it is an enormous problem affecting so many, so many people and it's only going to grow. So exactly right. As we keep people older longer, right? This is yeah. one of those things that's going to afflict a greater part of the population. So we want to get a, uh, get a handle on it and hopefully come up with therapies. And so that's one piece of evidence. The other piece of evidence was work that was coming out from other groups to show that if you just look at the extremes, that is people with, with symptomatic AD versus appropriate healthy controls, age matched and whatnot, their gut microbiomes are different, right? So someone else had just shown this. And, and interestingly, right, this the whole idea of the gut-brain axis, I think is partly seeded. But the reason people start looking at this is because of this observation that in almost any disease state, you know, that we have in humans now, there's probably a difference in the gut microbiome, mm-hmm. right? Therein lies both an opportunity and a challenge, right? Because now if you get to this point where the microbiome is always different, you want to be worried about red herrings, right? Why sure. is it different? Is it actually related to the disease or not? And I'll just say this up front and I'll try to say this again later on, that we have to have this level of humility when we're looking for these correlations to be okay with something being uh, not a cause but an effect, mm-hmm. right? In terms of the microbiome. And what do I mean by that? 
So let's just take any neurodegenerative disorder. Let's take Parkinson's or let's take uh, uh, AD as an example. When you are in, in dementia, severe dementia, everything about your life is going to change, including, for instance, your dietary habits, right? And your ability to make decisions. And if that happens, 100%, you're going to be impacting things like your microbiome. Because if you're eating completely different now, differently now than you did 10 years ago, that's been shown to be a massive sort of interacting feature with your microbiome. It could be different. Sure. So the first thing that we should always ask ourselves almost as the kind of null hypothesis is that while it might be true that the microbiome is different in symptomatic AD individuals versus healthy individuals, is the microbiome actually playing any role in the disease? Or is it simply a, a sort of another consequence of the disease, mm -hmm. right? Just making sure that we're thinking about that could be a possibility. But that still then motivated the study that you talked about, which is to say, because we fortunately, through this amazing Alzheimer's disease research center that we have here at WashU, had access to people with AD, as well as people with familial risk of AD, this, this incredible cohort of people who had volunteered to be part of this tracking over you know long periods of time. And from that, we already knew we had a pretty large cohort of healthy individuals and preclinical AD individuals whose like sort of their markers had begun to spike, but there was no evidence of any sort of neuro, uh, of any cognitive decline. And so through this NIH funded project, this is a big program project around here, which is studying every aspect about these individuals, many different labs involved in collaboration with the ANSYS lab. And then another lab, Phil Tarr's lab, who does a lot of sort of infl gut inflammation work, mm. The three of us proposed and were fortunately selected lead this effort uh, looking at the gut-brain axis in this specific cohort, right? So just the, the, the cohort already existed. We were leveraging that resource. Sorry to interrupt, but I mean, that in itself is huge. I mean, you know, we've uh, talked about quite a bit here over the past couple of years, just how difficult and expensive clinical trials remain, if not homogenous, because they're so expensive to travel to if you can travel to and recruiting them and all these different things. And obviously yours is not one that can specifically be done via Apple Watch or things like that, which yeah. is helpful in, in for some other ones, but not necessarily, obviously, for this. So to have that available to you is amazing. Can I ask one other question just to set the stage a little bit before oh, yeah. we continue? Yeah, of course. What is the current, and you know, I had uh, quite a few grandparents with this. I've known other folks with it today. What is the current sort of standardized testing, if it's out-of-a-box testing, for someone to find out if you have that risk, essentially, way before symptoms? Like, talk to me about age and when it would be recommended, and then sort of, again, like, off the shelf, what would that look like to say you're eligible for this because you have higher risk of it. Yeah. So first of all, let me be a very clear as a disclaimer. I'm not a physician, right? Of so uh, I'm not a neurologist either. So I can't make any specific recommendations to anyone to do anything. No, but no, I can no. give you the, the research answer, at least, and what I'm aware of, right? So first of all, let's distinguish between when you would be tested because you have AD symptoms mm -hmm. versus when you would be tested or what you'd be eligible to do in terms of understanding risk. Sure. Right. So uh, if you have AD symptoms so that you've got the, the sort of diagnosis of dementia, right, which is probably through your primary care physician and then uh, a specialist neurologist visit, that would trigger probably with the, with the assistance of as long as you have health insurance coverage for battery of tests, right, that would, would occur to, to uh, and that includes a combination of plasma markers, so things that would be taken from the blood looking at your cerebrospinal fluid, right? So this mm -hmm. is by doing a spinal tap and looking at markers in the CSF, 
and brain imaging. So those are the three sets of things that give you a variety of these biomarkers to confirm that you have elevated levels of the type of things that have been seen in prior patients who have had AD. So now, now, again, that is all for people who've already got, have the symptoms, right? Who, sure. Who've gone that route. Sure. So there's one more thing I mentioned, uh, didn't mention that's important, and that is there's also some amount of uh, genetic risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are particular genes, particular alleles of genes, or particular versions of genes that sure. if you happen to have that version, uh, then you're at elevated risk of, of developing AD. So that, that'll also be checked. Okay. While that's really important to understand what might be going in terms of your dementia, in many ways, sadly, that's a little bit too late. Sure. Right. And that's not the people in your study. No, because in that sense, you're, you're confirming that something is at that sort of end stage of the disease, but usually it's harder to, to intervene at that stage, mm-hmm. right? So you're really asking about, you know, how do people assess their risk earlier on to know what trajectory they're on? Sure. And, and honestly, like almost every disease that's of this kind of, you know, longer term kind of progressive nature, one of the best predictors of your risk is past family history. It's the non-sexy scientific stuff, sure. right? It's the like, it's the simple, intuitive, if you had two parents who had this disease, then you're likely to be at higher risk of that particular disease, sure. right? So often, and in fact, uh, the, the the study that we are leveraging here is called the ACS study, which is the adult children study of people who had Alzheimer's disease, right? Sure. So these are people who already, that's the reason we think they're at risk. So those people already will know to start looking for, you know, maybe early symptoms. And then oftentimes the way they are able to get early information is right now, at least, through involvement in research and clinical trials. Okay. Right. Got it. So they would, because we just don't know right now exactly what the predictors are, your insurance company is not going to pay for you to do, you know, uh, frequent testing towards really any disease state. And there's a good reason for that. It's not just a sort of cynical game of, right, like they don't want right. to pay for things until they absolutely have to. You know, that one of the reasons they don't want to do this, they don't want to scare the shit out of everyone yeah. uh, based on telling you that, oh, you know, here's your 20% risk of everything that can kill you. That's what we're wrestling with, with BRCA and things like that, right? It's part of the reason they don't want you to do the full body MRIs and things like that, right? I mean, there's things that are in there that you might never even touch. 100%, right? A lot of these are combinatorial to say, yeah, you know, it's there's a 20% risk of this, but you actually need to have all of these other things also have to happen, including, for instance, trying to show some. So that's a long way of saying that right now, if you're a 40-year-old and you're really interested in your risk of AD and you have no family risk of AD, there's virtually nothing your physician is going to recommend for you to do outside of tracking your health normally and doing your annual checkup or whatever it is, because at this stage, the, the information that you might gather is probably too dangerous for you. Right. right? That, okay. that you're, you're probably not going to be able to do anything with it. If, on the other hand, you are someone who has either, for whatever other reason, a known genetic risk factor, so one of these APOE alleles, for instance, which is mm-hmm. known to be correlated with, with AD, and you have a strong family history, then your best bet of getting information is to probably enroll in one of these, these not trials, gotcha. because they're not going to test any drugs on you, but one of these things that tracks you and helps you understand and get some sure. amount of feedback. And, and I, again, I would just say that our volunteer population here that's part of, of this night ADRC are, are just incredible people. 
right? They're 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 doing obviously they're motivated, but uh, they go over and above to be you know part of this this enterprise that you know at the back of their minds they probably realize it's not really going to help them immediately. They're making an investment for all of the other thousands of families and their kids and grandkids in terms of you know you track me now. Uh, maybe I'll get some benefit out of it, but probably it's going to take another 10 years. And yet they're going to come in for these, you know, annual testing and these extra things that they have to do. And and I cannot say how brave that is, right? And how sort of altruistic that is for them to do this. Um, so yeah, this would exist without those people and their commitment. I love it. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing. Again, I think that helps set the stage for people who might be thinking like, am I someone who's in, who, who might have this because of X and Y and what do I do and what's the process? And again, you're not a physician and very clearly neither am I. It helps to just set the stage for these things because I think people hear about cancer blood tests and find out all your stuff and this and that and then Theranos and you go like, what? what? And is it too early and is it not? So anyways, that helps set the stage. I would, you know, I'll give you the simple, like, you know, Oftentimes, I think what you usually ask people when they, they come up and, and talk about these things is what would you do, right? Sure. It's a version of whenever I try to contact a reference for someone who I'm trying to consider to hire, the most important question I can ask that person is, would you hire this person? Yeah. Would you rehire this person, right? Sure. So it's the same type of thing. And so I've never taken any of these tests, right? right. I, I haven't done any genetic testing, uh, not because I think there's anyone shouldn't do it. It's just that I, at this point, don't feel like I need that extra stressor. I have none of the symptoms right. associated with these particular yep. diseases. And so I'll do what my, my general physician tells me in terms of whatever annual testing. I'm not going to ask for more information right now, right? I'm right. fully committed to, to the healthcare system and engaging with it if there's a reason to do so, but for I'm sure. not going to do it until then. Yeah, I got enough going on. I get it. Okay, so let's talk about these folks in the study. Now, you had access yep. to this cohort. How did this get off the ground here? You guys got approved for the grant, the three of you, and you got to work. Exactly. So so again, as I said, it's, it's, uh, it's one of these things called a program project grant. So there's like four or five different uh, interconnected projects. Some of those were already ongoing. They're the ones who were collecting the plasma biomarkers and doing the metabolomics of the blood and doing the brain imaging and whatnot. Our project was a proposal to say, okay, let's go back to these individuals, re-ask them whether they'd be willing to provide support at a particular frequency. We wanted to get uh, at least a single stool pretty close to the rest of their measurements. And then over the course of this five-year grant, we wanted to contact them, you know, at least three more times so that we'd mm -hmm. get some amount of... of um, and there were sort of two main things we wanted to ask uh, or two main things we wanted to test for. One was what happened sort of statically. So this is what we call a cross-sectional study. And that's the study that we published on. Uh, but so, so I'll get to that in a second. But just to say what's, what's next is, so right, the, the cross-sectional study is just to say, get as many individuals in these two groups as possible, the healthy group versus the preclinical group. And single time points, uh, study their stool and look for correlations. And I'll, I'll get back to what we did with that. But what we're also hoping to do is say, again, that this is a progressive disease. And we know based on previous statistics from this group that sadly, some fraction of these individuals over time will switch groups as their yeah. disease progresses, right? So some fraction of the healthy people, because they're already in this familial risk category, will actually become preclinical. Hey, everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect 
and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. And some fraction of the preclinicals will likely turn symptomatic over that five-year time point. And what's, what's important about that recognition is that gives us an incredible test within our own cohort of whether any correlates we find are actually potentially predictive over time. Because the hope would be that if we truly do find differences, let's say between preclinical and healthy and, and, and symptomatic and preclinical, then we should predict that people who switch states right? When they were in the preclinical stage, looked more like preclinical individuals. And when they switched states to be symptomatic, they look more like symptomatic individuals. So, so that's something that's sort of down the line that's coming as the study progresses over its sort of five-year and then later type one. So what did we actually do in this case, right? The samples that we published on came from about, uh, you know, about 150 individuals. Uh, about 50 of those were in the preclinical category, and about 100 of those were in the healthy category. Right. Okay. The exact numbers are, are, you know, I'm off by maybe five or so, sure. but, you know, that gives you a nice ballpark. It's about a two to one ratio. OK. Uh, and what we did in terms of the study was we collected their stool samples and we sequenced all of the microbial DNA within the sample. The technical jargon is we, we did shotgun sequencing. Right. OK. Uh, and it's called that because you literally just take all of the DNA that you extract out of the stool. Most of that is in the form of the microbes. And then you sequence all of it. OK. And then you analyze it. Right. Right. Uh, and, and without getting into the gory details of all of the, like, exactly what you analyze, let's talk about what you get out of it, sure. right? So what are you trying to infer? Uh, so, so largely by comparing that sequence information to databases, you can ask a couple of questions. One is you can ask which microbes are there, You're kind of taking a census. Mm -hmm. Baseline. Yeah, baseline, exactly. Just saying, you know, it, it really is, the census is actually the perfect word to use because it would be like saying, okay, I'm going to take a census of the people in Missouri sure. and a census of the people in Virginia, mm -hmm. and then I'll ask, are there commonalities and differences in terms sure. of, you know, education and the, you know, ratio of people who have, uh, uh, you know, jobs versus not jobs, things of that ilk, right? Sure. So we're doing something pretty similar. 
uh, where rather than two different you know states of the country, we're talking about two different states of a disease, right? You're just trying to understand upfront which bacteria are there and how many of them. And then the second thing you try to infer because you're sequencing all of them is what functions might those bacteria have? Right, because all of our, our genomes have encoded things that that give us the instructions of what to do. Bacteria have the same thing. That's just the data that was collected. What did mm -hmm. we find? Um, so uh, baseline, we found that there was in fact a difference in the microbiome on average of the people who were preclinical versus the people who were healthy. So that was the first check mark to suggest that we were on the right track. That this is right. actually worth continuing to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, because that was a wide open ways. question. Sure, absolutely, right. We could have easily found that even though the earlier studies were correct, that the extremes, healthy versus symptomatic, were different, maybe there was no difference in the microbiome in between, right? And we were willing to accept that, but that's not what we found. We did find that, in fact, the preclinical individuals had a significant difference in the type of bugs that they had in their guts. Mm -hmm. And so let's again stop now in terms of interpretation. What does that mean? What can we take away from this? Sure, first right? question. And what we find and what our interpretation is, is that, uh, oh, I should say, we also want to know like, not only what it is, but what it may not be. So this goes back to the, the thing that I said at the very, very beginning of explaining the study is that it's okay to find differences uh, uh, in, in any of these particular studies without them necessarily being related to cause, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what do I mean by that? Why do I say that? Because again, this goes back to the point I said that your microbiome might be different because you changed your eating habits. Your microbiome might be different in a particular group because uh, the disease itself caused some problem which caused the microbes to change. Sure. It wasn't the microbes that were causing anything to do with the disease, right? Right. But we were okay with that, not, not only because, of course, you need to be okay with whatever your data shows, but because there's still clinical value with the finding where purely a difference in the microbiome being sure. an effect rather than a cause because it could be diagnostic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So because we're now able to show that the microbes are different in these preclinical individuals versus healthy individuals, you could envision a future where, as long as we can show this reproducibly, that you could design a very simple stool test right, which looks for the presence or absence of these discriminatory bacteria, right, mm -hmm. the ones that are higher or lower in the healthy versus uh, a preclinical state. And it's a very quick and very cheap compared to, you know, all of the other testing we talked about screen that could sure. basically tell someone, should I go and get further AD testing or not? Right, right, which might influence insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, if, you are, if you've never done a stool test and you might feel like you're disgusted by it, it's compared to a spinal tap, it's not even close. Just exactly <laughs> right. It's it's over so quick. One hundred percent. So again, I will be will be clear. That's not what we're saying. We can show right now. Of course right? not. We haven't designed a stool test. We're not saying anyone should go on and do this. We're right. saying that we're providing the evidence base that this is something that we could consider as right. one part of AD diagnosis in the future. So that's sure. one part. But there's a tantalizing, uh, separate or additional. Uh, 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 prospect in terms of what we showed. And that is, what if these microbes are part of the disease progression uh, process, right? Maybe they're not just markers to tell you something's wrong in the gut. Maybe these bugs are doing things, either bugs that are enriched in the healthy individuals are somehow, you know, pot potentially keeping the disease process in check, right? Or 
a group of other microbes because they're either up or down in the people who have preclinical symptoms, uh, uh, sorry, preclinical markers. Maybe they're allowing the disease to move a little bit faster, right? Not the right. only reason, but 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 part of the disease process. So uh, for that reason, you can't only look at the bugs; you have to look at their functions, right? So that's mm -hmm. why I said that's the other thing that we can look at. And short answer is the jury's out a little bit as to what the exact connections might be. But we did find a few functions that also seem to discriminate between those two groups, right? Between mm. the preclinical and healthy. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing now is going a little bit deeper into that, right? So, so this is work that's not published, but that's ongoing. It's the next phase is, as I said, we're collecting more samples from the same individuals. And we've also continued to recruit new individuals, mm -hmm. test and strengthen our, our prediction so far. But then to apply a slightly different set of methods or complementary methods, we'd start looking for things on the host side. So they look at, for instance, markers in the gut of the individuals, so that mm -hmm. on the human side to say, you know, what is one mechanism that bugs could be doing bad things in terms of the gut-brain axis? Maybe they're elevating inflammation in the gut, right? Sure. We know a lot of this diseases where that's one of the important steps, right? IBD and, you know, even other kinds of infectious disorders, usually they trigger things and the immune system kind of starts reacting and that can cause a lot of, you know, problems on the host side. And that's one of the primary kind of mechanisms that have been put forth in terms of how the gut and the brain could be connected. It could be mm -hmm. inflammation in the gut that is transmitted over as signals over to the brain. Or actually, you can even imagine the other direction. Something in the brain triggers, you know, uh, signals to uh, increase inflammation in the gut, and that could cause, you know, dysbiosis in terms of uh, the, the bugs going haywire. It seems like the, the, the and, and please excuse my complete lack of nuance, but just to illustrate it, it seems like the easy question, the tantalizing question, is the chicken and egg one, right? Okay, yep. we know that there's this here. Is the gut driving the changes in the brain, which might become cognitive symptoms, or are the brain changes driving something in the gut, in which case, like you said, maybe then it's a diagnostic. But obviously, again, going back to the very beginning of my introduction, there's just an enormous amount of gray area and things we just don't know between both of those, much less combined, add in inflammation, environmental, et cetera, et cetera, right? But you did get to take the next step, which is the exciting part, right? That first question said, there are differences. Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. If there were no differences, we wouldn't be able to answer any of the or ask any of these other questions, right? Sure. So in the time we have remaining, I want to talk about two things, right? One Please. is what where are we going towards testing that chicken and egg, right? Mm -hmm. Also, if let's say we do find that the direction of the chicken and egg is, you know, the brain is causing the dysbiosis and it's entirely the host causing the microbes to be different, how can we still use that? And how can we test that from a diagnostic perspective? Sure. And in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the second uh, part first. Uh, and, and that is the ability to very quantitatively use some of this information in terms of how, you know, what do you actually do with that stool test, right? How can it help sure. with the, the, the diagnostic part? And that actually uh, turns towards this, you know, this particular field that's getting a lot of, of press, obviously, even in the uh, and, and a lot of uh, attention, uh, 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 certainly in, in the popular imagination. And this is so-called sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning approaches, right? Sure. Which I'll just be, be pretty blunt that much of that is packaging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, what we're talking about in sort of, you know, boring old school speak is doing pattern recognition. Right? Sure. Doing statistical analysis, looking for things that are up or down in one particular case versus another. 
right? And then what we what all of this machine learning stuff is basically saying: let computers figure out those patterns sure. and use those patterns to make predictions, right? Sure. So that is, if I find differences in group A versus group B, I can then train an algorithm to look for those differences in group C and then classify group C to be more like A or B. That's sure. really like you know that sort of machine learning one one. <laughs> and the more stool samples you have, the more data you get. Hundred percent, right? And so what we did, and so this is I should have mentioned at the outset. Most importantly, the study was run by a really incredibly talented, uh, led by a really incredibly talented graduate student at the time, Aura Ferrero. So what Aura did in this particular paper was after all of those correlations that I told you about, she trained a machine learning model, where she did a really clever thing, right? Where she said, okay, we have all of these host markers, right? Everything I just told you about that is studied, the spinal tap measures and the plasma measures and the uh, and the brain imaging measures. They're, they're what's used to classify these people as preclinical versus healthy. I could design a, uh, in fact, we, we do that, right? We, we, we take the combination of each of those measures, say, if they're above or below these thresholds, you're in one group or the other. And so you could build a machine learning model based purely on that, right? And, and there's nothing, there's no learning to do. That's kind of almost definitional, right? To say, if I have all of these markers and you give me a new individual and you give me, you know, all of those other things, you could tell you you're preclinical or not. Mm-hmm. So what she started doing is she said, okay, can I systematically go in and start removing some of those almost definitional features, right? And instead put in some of my microbiome data. Can I start mm. substituting out officially in this model, right? Microbiome features, so which is basically presence, absence of particular bacterial functions. And could they act as surrogate markers mm. compared to these much harder to get, much more invasive things to collect? And that was, uh, I think, one of the real great strengths towards the future of, of this particular study that, that Aura did, that, that the answer was yes. That's super right? interesting. That there were some of these markers, essentially, right? Let, let's take it in a very practical term. This means is there are a certain number of human tests that you may not have to do, mm-hmm. right? And instead, you could sequence someone's stool sample. Right. Right? Now, again, I have to be very careful to say this. We can't do that yet. Yep. Nope. 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 Just asking questions. Right. Exactly. This has the possibility in the future because of what we did here to say, look, this really becomes a way in which to, to say... Maybe you'll eventually still need to do that spinal tap, but you don't sure. need to do that now because, you know, this is a screen tool. So, so, so I think that's a huge value proposition because every new study that someone does, whether it's us or, 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 or another group on the microbiome, they can be used to refine and improve these models. Once the model exists, right, you can just keep adding to that. So I think that was a, a really, I think, important uh, uh, um, deliverable from the study is to say not only we find these correlations, but we can train these predictive models that can be improved with more data. Right. Sure. So that's that's Great. that's independent of chicken or egg. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then the, the the exactly what we're doing now to, to answer sort of what came first is as I mentioned, we're now trying to collect more information from the stool sample. Honestly, looking for. The, the the kind of markers that we know are correlated with inflama- inflammation on the uh, host side, right? So we're, we're, we're looking into the stool at, at greater depth. Um, and then uh, also asking, what are the microbes making, right? So mm. um, everything we did in terms of the analysis we described was sequencing of the DNA. Mm-hmm. And really, if, if you stop back, almost step back and t- philosophically, what does DNA sequence tell you? It tells you about potential, right? It tells you about what could happen, but it's not telling you actually what's happening, 
mm-hmm. right? Because all the DNA is, is it's a blueprint, right? It needs to be read, however, right? So, it, it, and I think blueprint is a good idea. It's like before you go to a city and figure out, you know, what kind of stuff you can do in the city, the DNA would just tell you about the kind of like map of where things are, but you mm-hmm. wouldn't get any of the Yelp ratings of like how good the restaurant is right. or, you know, how quickly you can get to places. To have all of that extra flavor, you need to look at other things, right? And so you need to look at RNA. This is the stuff that's actually being expressed, right? So mm-hmm. that's telling you that here's what the traffic signals are like. And you know that this neighborhood is more accessible than the other neighborhood. Sure. And then you also kind of want to understand, you know, what the language is that's spoken, right? Like, you know, how, how are you communicating in this particular city? And those are the metabolites. Those are the small molecules that the bugs are sending to each other. They're the signals that they use to talk to the, the, the immune system and the mm-hmm. host. And so it's this idea, it's this particular field called metabolomics, right? Much like, you know, genomics. Uh, And so essentially we're taking the same stool samples and adding a few more layers of asking for these more details, right? Not only who's there and what they could do, but what are they doing and how are they talking to each other as a way to answer that chicken and egg question? Because if we can find different metabolites and we can find different expression of genes from both the bug and the host side, that'll begin to tell us yeah, I think, you know, this might be going in the direction of the bugs telling the host to do some bad stuff. Or is it, you know, the, the bugs are more responding to stuff that the host is doing. So sure. so that's kind of the, the next phase of what's going on with this particular study. I mean, either way, again, you get to keep asking questions, right? You get to advance to the next boss, uh, as it were, to yep. use sort of D&D or game, game thought. It seems like there's already, and again, very early, still asking questions, all, all, all preclinical, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there are really interesting implications with this in a world where, again, as we've seen in the past year and a half or so with the news about the past couple of decades of Alzheimer's research, leaving aside the microbiome, you know, we have relied on a sort of a set of facts and assumptions that may not have, have uh, necessarily held up and put billions of dollars behind them. And now we get to ask new mm-hmm. questions about a whole new field that we're trying to understand and you're leading as it is. Um, you know, just these questions of, uh, again, you know, here someone's doctor says, take these probiotics and do this and this. But yep. at the same time, understanding, forget if the consumer or the patient understands what they are, like baseline DNA, uh, what are these things? Much less, what do they do? What do they produce? What do they influence the different systems in the body? Knowing that, um, like you said, on the immunology side or the inflammation side, what that might be. But it seems like so far the implications are we could, by just adding more stool and asking more questions on what we have, we can hopefully improve the accuracy of those machine learning models, right? For further strengthening the study. And again, maybe running into things that make us go, oh, that's interesting. And what about that? Possibly a precursor, again, possibly a precursor test to your spinal taps, your brain scans, things like that, to establish if you have any risk, much less an increased risk of developing dementia. And again, it's a gross oversimplification, but I think of how, you know, you might use an x-ray or an MRI or something to discover some sort of tumor, and then you're going to find out if it's benign or malignant, things like that, right? 100%. Yep, yep. But also possibly making diagnostics that are just easier, and hopefully more affordable in a world where so many people don't even have uh, Medicaid of any sort. And and that's obviously our, our health system is, is, and again, I know you're obviously not a physician here, but so much of it is predicated on um, reaction and surgery versus wellness and, and prevention. Um, so what in your mind 
on the microbiome part is what of this is sort of new to you? So when you guys go back to that soccer practice and you think, how can I get my my discipline involved in this? What of this has been surprising and new to you and made these next five years uh, exciting to ask questions that you didn't get to ask last year that maybe you get to ask five years from now? That's a wonderful question because it's not just on our gut-brain access stuff, but it's really everything else our lab does, right? Our lab right. is is very much a kind of, you know, let's look at the microbiome and everything kind of lab, right? Sure. We're trying to understand, you know, which parts of it tell us something about health, which parts can be manipulated, uh, which ones should we be left alone? And so, you know, what do we know now that we didn't know back then and what would we like to learn? And And I think, you know, one thing that we've learned that I think we didn't know back then is this power of including other aspects of human measurements as essentially part of our microbiome analyses in an integrative fashion, being able to do so much more than if we were just treating the microbiome on its own, mm. right? And so there's this concept that it's actually been around for a really long time, but I think it's coming back into in vogue, if you will. And that's this concept of the human being a holobiont or a, a holo organism, sure. right? That uh, especially from the microbiome-centric point is to say that the microbiome shouldn't be thought of as, as, as accessory anything, right? It's just another organ. But it's a really unique organ because unlike our uh, eyes and our hands and our uh, and our guts, for instance, right, we can't willy-nilly change those in a very, like we can do transplants, but that's a huge deal, sure. right? But we're effectively born with, with those because of the, of the DNA blueprints that are in our, in our genomes. The microbiome is unique, however. Not only does it have all of those features of a, of a critical organ that it talks to every other organ, but it's, it's fundamentally malleable right? You can change the components sure. of it, whether you like it or not, right? Sure. So you can change it inadvertently by taking huge doses of antibiotics or, or, you know, changing your diet. But you can also potentially figure out if there's something wrong, there are opportunities to change it in ways that you cannot do with any other organ. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, did we not fundamentally understand that five years ago? Of course not, right? Of course, we, we had that idea. But I think sure. five years on, we are beginning to appreciate not only how important that is conceptually, that there are so many aspects about human health and disease that we might be able to diagnose and intervene on because of the fundamental malleability of the microbiome, right? But that also, that now that becomes a novel way to really think about human health holistically, right? Sure. That we think of ourselves as, you know, and I think this is where we, have, we, have, we always have this balance between gen versus specialist right? Sure. So you go to a doctor, right? That's the reason why when you talk to a physician, ideally, you first talk to a general practitioner, because they're going to ask you the, the big picture question, how are you doing, right? Sure. Not, you know, is your eye twitching, right? Like, mm -hmm. they, they, they want to understand generally, are you in a good space, right? Including your mental health and, and your physical health. And it's only if there's something that's awry, might they send you down the route of that specialist. And I think what, you know, that thinking has really influenced us in terms of our day to day aspects of the microbiome to say, much like we don't want the people on the host side to forget the microbiome or ignore the microbiome in terms of its role in human health, we also ourselves must have that humility to not only think of the microbiome in a host agnostic uh, uh, way, right? I think sure. we were guilty of it, certainly was guilty of it. I mean, I've, I've been known to, to, even though it's facetious and flippant to say, you know, 
for a lot of our studies, the, the, the human is a really exciting Petri dish, right? Uh, because we care about the microbes. And of course, we don't sure. think that, right? Sure, like sure, fundamentally, sure. we're doing this because we care about human health. But I think the practical nature of it, right? What we can do now, and I think what we need to do in five years is, you know, do collect uh, that correlated data, right? When you're running a microbiome study, collect as much about the host as you can. Find out what they're eating, you know, find out, you know, about their demographic features and their socioeconomic features, because so much of that is going to influence what's going on with the microbiome such that you can control for those features, you can customize those for diverse populations, and then look for those particular needles in the haystack that might be either the diagnostic or the thing that you can, you know, therapeutically intervene on. I mean, I'm not scared to take this back to our soccer metaphor here, got him, <laughs> which is the sense that like, this is, you are the microbiome, the microbiome's you, right? It is this thing that is so malleable, but is also very, from my very, very, very limited basic perspective, a facilitator for so many other parts of the body mm -hmm. in this hollow biome, or you want to call it a closed system or a bag of meat, whatever we might be, right? 70% water. It is, it so clearly is influenced by and can influence so many other systems. Like you said, it cannot just be an accessory. It's the beauty of, again, asking questions about the brain, right? Which is you, you pull the string and you don't just get the rest of the sweater. There's different sweaters and there are different shapes and sizes. And you go, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> and the microbiome is the same thing. You don't just go, okay, do the, is there this genetic influence on on what it might be? There's also, in, just as saying environmental is so many different things from, from food mm -hmm. and drink and the air and the water and all of these different things uh, you might, uh, microplastics, whatever it might be. Like there's so many different factors. But in the end, it's beautiful because, again, the more of this, this is very simplistic too, the more data we have about these things, the more we can find out what it can do and what it cannot do. And what don't we know yet? That's one of my favorite questions here is just like, what don't we know yet? What are the what are the known unknowns or the unknown unknowns about this? Which oh, 100%. Like said, five, and, and, 10 years ago for the microbiome was everything, basically. Yeah, and, and I think that's why this field is so exciting, uh, just as exciting, if not more exciting now than it was you know, when I started working on this, whatever, 15, 20 years ago, when I first heard about the work in the microbiome is that while I think the field, and I think we have played a small part in, in the aspects of have advanced, right? We know a lot more. There is this entire new universe of things that we're discovering that we realize that there is so much more to learn about those both known unknowns and, and unknown unknowns that are going to be fundamentally important for uh, making the microbiome and uh, sort of critical part of maintaining human health, not just mm -hmm. treating it, but but maintaining it. And and one aspect that, because it was not involved in the study, I didn't allude to, but, you know, hopefully I sort of at least planted the seed by, by calling the, the microbiome malleable, right? Mm -hmm. it, it does let us know that, or at least it tells us that that becomes a super unique route of novel therapeutic intervention in the future. Sure. So you talked about probiotics and most people think of probiotics right now as the kind of supplements you can get, like, yeah. you know, a good bug associated with something. And, and that is one version of it. But the way we think about probiotics is one step further to say, you know, they're engineerable vehicles, right? There, there is you know, the ways in which that these are sort of living, breathing drug delivery vehicles. If we can safely engineer a microbe, to produce a particular drug at a particular part of the body, you now have so much more exquisite control in principle, as opposed sure. to popping a single pill of some type, right? Uh, of course. And there's a whole arm of our lab who's working on that to, to say, you know, in so many of the at least gut-relevant pathologies, 
you know, you, you pop a pill and it needs to go through the stomach and all of the like, you know, uh, low pH digestive juices and that like kills a lot of our drugs. Right. You know, what if instead we could get a bug that's already adapted to pass all the way through and then you engineer it to produce that drug where it need, needs to go. So again, there's a ways to go with that. But I think that's another huge part of synthesizing all of this basic science and clinical sort of observational research to say good bugs, bad bugs, benign bugs, right, uh, correlated with health and disease. But now the way we can intervene doesn't have to only go back to old school medicines, right? Doesn't have to go back to say, okay, this is bad and this is good and we can give, you know, diet or drugs. We can actually engineer the next round of bugs to be the ones that actually deliver the next round of thing, you know, either health promoting or, you know, disease uh, uh, mitigating uh, medicines of the future. I love it. So uh, if there are more of these altruistic people out there listening who are either on the healthy side or on the preclinical side because they know their markers or they don't, is there a way to get involved there? Or are there other studies you would send people, folks towards, again, just in the sense that there's people out who are like, yeah, sure, take my blood, take my poop for 10 years. I don't care. You know, if it helps, great. Yeah. So, you know, certainly I think that probably the simplest thing for you as an individual is to look geographically close to you as to where your closest medical center is. Uh, and there's clinical trials and there's observational trials always running. Alzheimer's disease is one of the sort of the grandest sort of, you know, medical challenges of our time. So there are many such studies. Mm-hmm. And WashU just happens to have a really, really excellent uh, medical center here. So if you're certainly in the region, or even if you're not in the region, if you go to the, it's called the ADRC, the Knight K-N-I-G-H-T, Knight ADRC, uh, and you can look and see what volunteer opportunities exist there. Mm-hmm. Again, just for, for helping the families for convenience, they tend to recruit people who are local right sure. so that, that, that you know there's not a huge travel burden uh but yeah we're not the only ones there's there's great centers over you know i think uh, duke might have a really excellent center and i think there's there's some down in california i think the mayo clinic does some stuff so really honestly any really really large medical center yeah. is likely to have alzheimer's disease studies ongoing and then you can decide by looking at what those options are uh, and then probably through those find other sort of patient as well as family networks of, of deciding, do you, do you want to be in an interventional study or do you want to be in something that's observational? Sure. I'll let our second uh, light change there be our indicator to, to, <laughs> to ask you my last couple questions and get you out of here so you can go back to examining poop. Last view. First of all, this has been tremendous. Thank you so much. Great. I, I truly love learning about this. It matters so much. I think it's going to impact so many people. And and we obviously, if we get to do, as I say to my children, we don't have to do, we get to do uh, so many more years of incredible research and the more for yep. greater variety of folks and environments we can pull in, the better. You got started in this a long time ago, back when the microbiome was in black and white, obviously. In general, what would you say was the first time in your life where you felt like you had the power to make some sort of change, whether yourself or with a group, could have been as a child, a teen, student, grad student, adult, running your lab, whatever it might be, where you looked up and said, oh, that's interesting. Look what I can do. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so honestly, I think it is well before I heard about anything to do with the microbiome, but just to answer that question, when did I, you know, when did I look up and wonder and think about things that I could have a, a role in? And it was actually in, in, in boarding school. So I grew up in India. I grew up in then called Bombay, now Mumbai. Um, 
And in ninth grade, surprisingly, I was jazzed about the idea of going to boarding school. So it was not like my parents sent me away, but I went to a small American-run boarding school in, in South India. And it was an eye-opening experience just because of the, the incredible opportunities that, you know, again, I had the privilege of accessing because my parents decided to, to fund this. And there, one of the things you got to do is run an independent research study if you wanted to. And I did this in my senior year under the tutelage of my biology professor. And he had me team up with a local biochemistry student who was run, doing his PhD. And I played a tiny, tiny role, like it was an inconsequential role to the, the research project. But it was there that I was introduced to this idea of use local to think global, if you will, right? Okay. So, and what I mean by that is this person was was really interested in understanding sort of local exposure to, to sort of seasonal pollen, right? Because this is uh, an area that was very lush and thinking about how that might impact uh, allergic reactions on the host site. And so he was collecting uh, pollen from a variety of different plants in different seasons and the sort of hills that we lived around. And then he was studying, uh, you know, particular immune responses in the blood to that particular pollen. And all of that, I probably appreciated more many, many years later. At that mm. point, as a high school student, I, I appreciated a small amount of it. But really, the, the, the aspect of it was to, to say, hey, this guy is spending, you know, a dedicated part of his life looking at the tiniest details, which you can't even really visualize, mm -hmm. but his motivation for it is to hopefully understand how allergies work, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by start local. Like he was looking at the plants around him and he was looking at it at this exquisite level of detail, but he was trying to ask and answer bigger questions. And I found that exceptionally motivational. And I never, I mean, I didn't go into pollen or plants or anything like that, but I was just inspired by by that, you know, I think now somewhat kind of, you know, perhaps see obvious or simple point of how biology and, and other kinds of science works, where you want to think about what that big picture motivation is, even if you're not the person who's going to necessarily solve it, but use that as a way in which to then think, what can I locally do to advance this at least a little bit? So. I think that I to me, that. that's probably the first time that I can crystallize where, you know, that little bit of spark came in to say, this is the type of thing that I want. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. One last one before we get you out of here. Um, what is a book that you've read this year in all of your free time that's either opened your <laughs> mind to a topic or an idea you hadn't considered before entirely, or has actually changed your thinking in some way on something else? And we've got a whole sort of list. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, honestly, I, I'm a better place to answer this question than I think when we spoke last, because that's one nice thing that the you know silver lining of the pandemic did is it gave me a lot more time to read. Sure. Uh, and then it also gave me a fair amount of time because I really got into bike riding like on my bicycle of listening to books, uh, like sort of audio books. Game so, changer. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's been really, really wonderful. And so one of the most sort of influential books that for me at least, and I would say most of my reading has been uh, fiction, not nonfiction, mm -hmm. non is a, a series that many of your readers are probably going to be familiar with called The Three-Body Problem, right? So this sure. is a thing that came out uh, several years ago, the first book. I'm going to butcher the author's name. I think it's Shi Xin Liu, mm -hmm. uh, a Chinese author. And it's interesting. What was most influential for me about that book was not actually the uh, the details of the, of the, of the story, mm -hmm. but it was realizing uh, with almost some amount of guilt of how western centric we've been in appreciating you know the place that we might have in the future right mm -hmm. every other science fiction book that i really read uh, centers around you know a sort of either eurocentric or americocentric future right 
And this book, because written by a Chinese author, uh, just didn't have that perspective, right? Mm -hmm. the, and, and a different group of people were centered in it. And so while it was still, it's a fascinating story and I've gone and actually watched the, whatever the, the, the Chinese version, the, like mm -hmm. the TV series based on the mm -hmm. first book. So I've, I've enjoyed the story tremendously. But in terms of true impact, what that book really did for me was open my eyes to that bias that I had to say that, of course, we center, center ourselves in our stories. And it's really neat when these art forms get more global because we get to see perspectives from people and from like very, very rich cultural traditions that we've lost out on mm -hmm. by only having this thin slice of how this has been presented to us. So, so that's why, right, that's, and I've tried to seek out more of those type of books. Uh, and it's, what's been really good is, again, with my, my kind of, my bent towards science fiction, I feel like the, the people who vote for the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, right, the big uh, sci-fi awards, sure. have been really championing diverse voices. And so, yeah. you know, this is just one example of it. But I think the last few years, it's been really cool to see, you know, gender rep representation used across, you know, many, many different facets. And challenging the way we even use, you know, all of the, the controversy about pronouns to see that just thrown away and and and, and used in such a creative way with, with books. And so, but anyway, this book, I think for me was 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 eye-opening to, to think about, even in fiction, how bias is important to address and then actually uses a way in which to, to improve the way we tell our stories. I love that thoroughly. Three things, I'm going to say them before I forget them. I assume you've read some Ted Chang. I haven't actually, no. Oh man, it's fantastic. Just go down go down the rabbit hole. I'm a big okay. fan of short stories, which brings me to my second okay. one. There's a collection, they're not sci-fi, of South Korean short stories I read years ago called Once the Shore. And same thing where I was just like, I I, I need to get outside this bubble of of this, which is all wonderful, but there's there's so much more out there. And there's a oh, third one. Uh there was a short I don't know if you call it novella, novel. I don't. I, it's won a bunch of awards. This is how you lose the time war. Came out a couple of years ago. Don't read anything about it. It's it's okay. It's one story. It's incredible. It's one of those ones you put down and just go. How does how 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 does this come to be? And I'm not fantastic. Going to yeah. give you no other background, but I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing your your expanded perspective on that. Where can our listeners follow the work that you all are doing and keep track of everything magical you're bringing into the world here? We try to keep our website pretty up to date. Uh, okay. in terms of, most importantly, the people who are part of the group, but also uh, all our publications. We put links to where they can find the papers if they want to get into it, links to when people in our lab are engaging with others. Uh, so yeah, that's it's just dantaslab.org. And I am, like many other people, <laughs> have got a little bit burnt at uh, uh, the intensity of dialogue on social media. So I'm no longer any actual social media platforms. No, thank you. Uh, I, that was entirely a personal mental health uh, decision. Some of the people in my lab are still on in, in, in different ways, uh, but there's no engagement out there outside of that. But uh, but yeah, we, we try to keep our website very up to date and you know encourage people if they have questions to reach out to me or more importantly, the other people in the lab, all of their email information is there too. Fantastic. Well, I cannot thank you enough uh, for coming back. It is, uh, I, I have always looked fondly on, on our conversation, even if I was a young whippersnapper who had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so uh, like you said, a lot has happened, including this incredible study, which you get to continue and build on and expand and, and connect with all these other programs, which is just so exciting, even if it uh, turns into nothing. And that's great because then we'll have yeah, yeah. found out. And that's wonderful. Uh, disproving hypotheses is just as critical as supporting them, right? Because it right. helps 
helps other people decide what to put their energies toward. But I've also really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. This is yeah. it's really nice to talk to someone who has clearly done their homework and is able to, to, to you know present some of the stuff that we've done in a in a simple and easy digest way and uh, and to make this a, a fun conversation. So I, I thank you oh. for that. Oh, I appreciate it. Sometimes morons can you know make a dent in the universe. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> And that is it. Important Not Important is hosted by me, Quinn Emmett. It is produced by Willow Beck. It is edited by Anthony Luciani. And the music is by Tim Blaine. You can read our critically acclaimed newsletter and get notified about new podcast conversations at importantnotimportant.com. In fact, there you can also find fantastic t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and other things. You can send us feedback. I'm on threads at Quinn Emmett or at importantnotimp. I'm also on LinkedIn. We're not really doing Twitter anymore. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can also go to importantnotimportant.com. Thank you for listening and thanks for giving a shit.